I tried to come up with a clever introduction to this sermon, but this is the best I could do. I love the Bible so, so much. I think it's fascinating. I think it's interesting. I love that the Bible includes 66 books by 40 different authors written over the course of about 1600 years. I love that there are 3,200 fulfilled prophecies in the Bible and counting, by the way, about that many that we're still waiting for. I love that the Bible is shallow enough for a child to bathe or splash in, but deep enough for an elephant to bathe in. I love getting caught up in just one little Greek word and unpacking it and pulling it apart and diving down to the very depths of what it is and just learning at the very granular level what's going on in the scripture. And I love reading through the whole thing and getting a sense of the meta-narrative of scripture and what God's doing in his redemptive plan. I love studying the Bible and coming across something that I don't understand. And so I've got to do some research regarding archaeology or linguistics or history or geography. And all of a sudden, when some of those things come to light, all of a sudden I understand, oh, that's what the Bible is saying. Now I get it. Now I understand it. I love it. I've got so many copies of it. They're all highlighted and marked up. I've got digital copies of it that I'm not supposed to highlight and mark up because you're not supposed to write on your computer. I love the software I have with commentaries and Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias and concordances. I love the Bible so much. And I think that's why it ticks me off when people say stupid stuff about the Bible. I mean, people say stupid stuff about the Bible all the time. Misguided stuff, wrong stuff, silly stuff. They oversimplify what's complicated. They overcomplify, is that a word? Overcomplicate <laughs> what is simple. They say stupid stuff about the Bible. How many of you have an iPhone? iPhone, raise your hand. Do you have your news feed on your iPhone? You had news feed? Did you see on the news feed this week that GQ magazine ranked the 20 most overrated books of all time and included the Bible? What kind of stupidity is this? This is ridiculous. Look, this is what GQ magazine said. Look, I'll put it on the screen. The Bible is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. That's what GQ magazine wrote. As a friend of mine used to say, someone's going to have to pay for that. I'll tell you that right now. Richard Dawkins, the modern atheist, wrote this about the Bible. He said, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird. As you would expect, a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents composed, revised, translated, and distorted and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other spanning nine centuries. My favorite character on The Simpsons is Apu. Apu is known to say, there are so many things wrong with that statement, I'm not sure which part to correct first. I mean, that's just an absolute mess. Not only is he anti-Bible, which look, if you're anti-Bible, okay, okay, that's your deal. I'm not, but that's your deal, that's fine. But at least get your history right. Like, at least get your facts straight, because this is squirrely. And some of you in the room, maybe you're non-Christians, you're non-believers, you're skeptical about the Bible, and you're thinking to yourself, you know what? This preacher is being pretty hard on non-Christians, pretty hard on atheists, pretty, pretty rough on non-believers. Just wait till I get to Christians. <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity offender here, I promise you, because Christians say stupid stuff about the Bible all the time. 
I Googled church signs this week. You ever Googled church signs before? You got 10, 15 minutes to kill at work, even if you don't have 10, 15 minutes to kill. Google church signs, because they will make you laugh. And here are some of the things that actual churches now put on their signs so that everybody can see what they think about the Bible. The Bible is God's love letter to you. My, we think a lot of ourselves, don't we? <laughs> the Bible's all about me. If you've read the Bible, you would know that the Bible is all about God. Yes, God loves you very, very much, but the Bible is not God's love letter to you. If it is God's love letter to you, read Numbers. His love is super boring. <laughs> or people say the B-I-B-L-E is basic instructions before leaving earth. This makes me feel like, this makes me feel like I'm getting abducted by aliens, doesn't you? <laughs> Like, what is this? This is, this is the other one. This is actual church signs. Now, actual church signs. Read your Bible. It'll scare the hell out of you. <laughs> you may be upset that I put that on the screen, but this is an actual church sign. I mean, this is silly, silly stuff. And what's happened in our culture, in fact, a recent article that I read by Barna Research Group discovered that in our culture, the group of people that are kind of Bible neutral, yeah, the Bible's good. The Bible's good. I like it. It's good. That, that group of folks is rapidly disappearing. And what we have on one side of the pendulum swing is people like Richard Dawkins and GQ Magazine. Side note, side note, side note, side note. If you're getting your spiritual advice about the Bible from a magazine where you can also read how to get really ripped abs and learn about you know, the intellectual giant, Megan Fox, you're probably reading the wrong stuff for your spiritual advice. That's just my two cents, all right, this morning. So you got GQ Magazine and Richard Dawkins on one side, and then on the far other side of this spectrum, what you've got is Christians that are well-intentioned and love the Bible, but because they're afraid to let science help interpret the Bible. I was reading a theologian this week, said we should not be afraid of science. The Bible's fine. The Bible's gonna stand up just fine. Or they say stuff like, God, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Might settle it for you, but it doesn't settle it for other people. Or they say things like the Bible is God's love letter to you. And those things creep into our consciousness. And what Barna is saying is that this group of people in the middle is disappearing. And what we have is two ends of a spectrum swung one side, of the, one side over here and one side over there. And they're polarized and they're fighting about what the Bible is and what it isn't and how to read it and what it says. And is it true? And is it historical? And is it verifiable? And what happens is these individuals begin to ask the Bible questions that the Bible was never intended to answer. They ask it scientific questions. The Bible's not a science textbook. Or, or they ask the Bible uh, questions like it's a newspaper article or like it's a novel. And they ask it questions like that. And the Bible's going, I never intended to, to give you those answers. In fact, I was in an airport recently. I, I end up in airports a lot. I was in an airport recently. And we went to a bookstore in an airport, Amy and I did. And I found a book called Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World. That's like reclaiming the beer store for people who don't drink beer. Like, in order to do that, you've got to totally change it, right? That's what the Bible is. It's a spiritual text. It's a religious text. I read two chapters of the book and put it down because it was stupid too. And then we've got Christians that come to church on a week-in, week-out basis, and they don't know their Bible very well. They don't know what the Bible says. They don't know what the Bible's about because they're not reading it, right? Don't lie. You're in church. You know you don't read it, <laughs> 
and we, and we, and we excuse ourselves and we say, oh, here, the, the Bible's too long. It's too long. It's so long. I can't read it. How many of you have read all the Harry Potters? Raise your hand. I'm serious. There you go. Longer than the Bible. How many of you have read all the Twilights? Longer than the Bible. It's not too long. Plus, it's divided up into 66 books, so just pick one. Right? I'll give you the shortest one. Jude. Do it. Good. Easy. All right? Or we say stuff like, the Bible is contradictory. It's, it's internally inconsistent. It contradicts itself. Here are a couple things. People who say that typically can't point to an example. They're just using it as an excuse because they don't want the Bible to speak in to their lives. My response usually is this, show me five and then we'll chat. <laughs> in fact, in this series, we're going to deal with some of those problematic texts. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about why history, geography, and language inform our read of the scripture. And those texts are nearly not as problematic as we like to think. Or we say stuff like the Bible's boring. It's boring. I mean, I've read this thing, and it is it's boring. If, if you think the Bible is boring, you have not read the same Bible I've read. I guarantee you. Listen, I'll just give you some examples. Song of Solomon is basically like, like advice for sex. That's what Song of Solomon is. Seriously. Like, if you're single, don't read Song of Solomon. It, I mean, if you understand what goblets and the navel of oranges and all that stuff, you don't understand what that is, I mean, that is a take a cold shower type of situation. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, which we studied a couple years ago. Remember sex, drugs, and rock and roll? That's basically like Hunter S. Thompson, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but like 1,500 years old, okay? Uh, in the New Testament, Paul is preaching. I love this story. He's preaching. There's a teenager named Eutychus sitting in a third-story window listening to Paul preach, and he falls asleep. So, first of all, this is the consequences for falling asleep in a sermon. Are you ready? Ready? He falls out the window and dies. That's what happens. It's for real, for real. And then Paul leaves and raises him from the dead and keeps preaching. Okay. I don't have any power to raise people from the dead, so just stay awake with me, okay, this morning. This stuff happens in the Bible. Elijah in the Old Testament was being mocked by some teenagers. He was one of God's prophets, and apparently he was bald, and so they called him the equivalent of baldy, hey, baldy. So he called a female bear out of the forest, and it mauled 42 of those teenagers. That really happened in the Bible. Boring? Please. <laughs> Look at, look at this one. I love this one. Absalom, Absalom, David's son, was in a battle and he was riding his horse and he had really long hair, like mullet, like I did in high school, okay? And really long hair. And he's riding through the forest and his hair gets caught in a tree and his horse rode out from underneath him and he hung there by his hair until he was captured and killed. How is that boring? Okay, this is my favorite one. This is my favorite one. You heard this story before? Raise your hand if that name sounds familiar. Anybody? Okay, a couple of you. Now, now listen to this. This is going to blow your mind. Ehud was an Israelite that went into a Canaanite king's palace. And he went to visit this evil king. Very, very evil king. And the Bible tells us that Ehud was left-handed. And it just kind of throws it in there. Like, nobody tells us why we need to know that Ehud is left-handed. He's just left-handed. So he gets into the king's palace, and we find out very, very quickly that Ehud and this evil king are one-on-one -on -one together, just the two of them, nobody else around, and Ehud has a sword. Well, how did Ehud 
get a sword in to this evil king. Everybody knows that Ehud and this king are enemies. The reason why the Bible tells us that Ehud is left-handed is because if you're right-handed, you carry your sword on your left leg. So you pull your sword from here, and then you stab people. Okay, Ehud, left-handed, he pulls his sword from here. So when he came in to see the king and the guards frisked his left leg and said, no sword, come on in. Ehud's going, ha, 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 I'm left-handed. So he gets in and the Bible tells us that this king was fat. The king was fat. And I'm I'm, I'm gonna be straight with you. As I thought about this story this week, the more I thought about it, the more uncomfortable I got because I'm like, am I allowed to tell this in church? Yes, I am. It's in the Bible. (laughs) So he gets this sword in and he stabs this fat king and it says that his gut spilled out everywhere and the fat closed around the handle of the sword. And Ehud took his hand out and left his sword in and left. Now, why didn't they just capture and kill Ehud, right? Why didn't they just take his life right there? He just killed their king. Well, all of the guards are under the impression that the evil king is inside relieving himself. I'm trying to to keep it PG this morning. Going number two. This is what the Bible says. And some of you are going, this is very uncomfortable. Again, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, right? So nobody wants to go in and bother the king. Hey, sir, you know, knock, knock, knock. You okay in there? Like nobody wants to do that. So they all just wait on the king. And whilst they wait on the king, Ehud walks out and escapes with his life. And then they all go in and say, oh my gosh, the king wasn't going to the washroom, right? He's dead. (laughs) This is in the Bible. And people say it's boring. Please. The Bible's complicated. The Bible is complicated. Mark Twain once said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. (laughs) 99% of it, the reality is it's very, very, very clear. So here's what I want to do this morning, just as an introduction to our series, because we're going to spend several weeks understanding the B-I-B-L-E. How many of you know that song? Did you grow up with that song? Did you grow up in Sunday school like I did? I grew up in uh, an area of the U.S., West Texas and Eastern New Mexico, where we have more church members than we do people. It's really weird. Uh, So everybody goes to church. Everybody goes to church. So I learned this song growing up. And if you know this song, you can sing it with me. Ready? The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was horrible. Um, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, I know that song, and when I sing it around the house, because I'm preparing for this series, I sing it around the house, and Kaya was like, the we, I, we, yeah, we. I'm like, that's not really what it is. But um, anyway, so, so I've noticed even that that song itself has got some problems with it. I stand alone on the word of God, really, outside of Christian community? Shame on you. Read the Bible. Uh, that's beside the point. Okay. So here's the deal. What I want to do with the remainder of our time is answer one critical question because I think a wrong answer to this one critical question is is the roots for all of the arguments that we've just talked about. This this wrong answer to this one, one critical question is the seed that gets planted that causes Richard Dawkins to say stuff that isn't true, that causes GQ Magazine to say stuff that isn't true, that causes us to say stuff like the Bible is God's love letter to me. And look, God loves you, and I'm not against that, but if we start to see the entire Bible as just for me, we miss the point of the Bible, I guarantee you that. 
or basic instructions before leaving earth. There's a lot of places in the Bible that aren't instructive. They're not prescriptive, they're descriptive. I mean, that changes the way that we read the Bible. So I wanna answer this one critical question. The second thing I wanna do is offer you four biblical truths that we're gonna unpack over the course of the series, just give you a little sneak peek this morning, and then we're gonna spend uh, the next five or six weeks talking about the Bible. Here's the first question that I want to answer, and I think it's so, so, so critical, is what is the Bible? What is the Bible? All my reading and all my study and interpreting God's word and living by the book by Hendricks and how to read the Bible book by book by D.A. Carson, all my study, I can't find anybody that just defines the Bible. And if we misdefine the Bible, we misunderstand what the Bible is, all of a sudden we start reading it in ways that it never was intended to be read. If if we think it's a scientific textbook, we bring a certain interpretive lens. If we think it's God's love letter to me, we bring a certain interpretive lens. And so we've got to define the Bible. What is the Bible? So if you're taking notes, here's one big key truth that I want us all to walk away with this morning is this, that the Bible... It's a library. The Bible is a library. I would even go so far to say, the B-I-B-L-E, it's not the book for me because it's a library. And you might think I'm playing with words here. You might think it's just semantics, but I think it's critical for us to understand that the Bible is a library. Why? Because there are 66 individual books in there. 40 authors written over the course of 1,600 years years. Now, you may have a personal library at home, and in your personal library, you might have copies of like Cigar Aficionado magazine, and you may have copies of like How to Fix a 1966 Mustang, and you might have copies of, you know, Citizen Kane, or, you know, Citizen Kane's not a book, is it? Whatever. Uh, Tale of Two Cities, Twilight, how about that, you know? You might have copies of all of that stuff, and you don't read all of those texts the same way, do you? You don't read newspapers the same way that you read novels. You don't read things that your wife has given you to read in the same way that you uh, read the things that you read for school or for work or from friends. You don't read old fiction books the same way that you read new historical nonfiction books. You don't read them all the same way. And if we start to think of the Bible as a single book instead of a library, we begin to apply the same interpretive lens to every text. And every book in the Bible is not the same. In fact, they're radically different. There's history in there. There's poetry in there. There's songs in there and wisdom in there. There's this new genre in there called the gospel uh, that has never been duplicated since. There are letters in there. There are books of prophecy in there written by fishermen and peasants and pastors and royalty and kings and by all kinds of people over three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And that Bible has been collected together. Those 66 books have been collected together and presented to us in a single library. The Bible's a library. But each library, as you know, has something that holds it all together, a common thread that makes it kind of work and glue together. Your personal library at home, what do all of your books have in common? You, right? You, those are your books. You like that stuff. Or at least you bought that stuff or took that stuff when somebody gave them to you. So what is it that those 66 books in our Bible have in common? Well, the Bible is a library of God's promises. 
The Bible is a library of God's promises. This is a very simple definition of what it is that's in that book. When we hold that book up, we are holding a library of God's promises. It tells us how God made promises, what promises he made. It tells us how the people responded when they said, we'll keep our promises. It tells us the consequences of what happens when people break their promises to God or they don't live in God's promise to them. It talks all about the promises of God. In fact, the Old Testament is hinges on five major promises that God makes to his people through Adam, Noah, Abraham, um, Moses, and David. And the New Testament hinges on that final promise that God makes and fulfills in his son. Anything and everything that you're reading in the scripture is about God's promises. So now what I want to do is take the whole Bible from a 30,000 foot view and to break it down into a couple of simple parts so we understand what is in that library of God's promises. The Bible's divided into two parts. The first two thirds of the Bible, give or take, is called the Old Testament. And the second part of the Bible, the second third, is called the New Testament. And for our purposes today, because we're calling the Bible a library of God's promises, what I wanna say is that the, the Old Testament is the book of God's first promises, and the New Testament is the book of God's second promise just so we can wrap our heads around it. Again, in the Old Testament, the book of first promises, God makes five promises to Adam, Noah, Abraham, uh, David, and Moses. And in that book of first promises, the Old Testament, it includes first God's law. God's law. Uh, this is typically what theologians would call the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In those books, you would read about God's promises to Adam, Noah, Moses, and Abraham. David will wait for here in a minute. So the four major promises, the first four major promises of God in the Old Testament are included in God's spoken law, where he tells his people, this is my promise, here are the stipulations surrounding my promise. Here's what you need to do and not do. And the people respond with, we will do everything that the Lord has told us to do. And then what do they do? They don't do it. They break their promise. So the next part of God's law is God's law broken. <laughs> Those are the books of history you might have heard them called before. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. All you read about in those books is people breaking God's promises and the consequences, God returning to them with his grace and drawing them back to him. And then they begin to live in God's promises again. And then they break God's promises again. It's history. People uh, sometimes read the Old Testament like, man, it's really violent. It's like there's so much violence in the Old Testament. Of course it is. It's historical. Like you don't read a book about a serial killer and go, man, this has gotten violent. It's like, it's, 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 it's a history book. I mean, that's what's happening in the Old Testament. They're not trying to hide stuff. What, what's happening in the Old Testament is they're going, look, when you break God's law, here's what happens. And those books record the history of people breaking God's law. Second part of the Old Testament is God's wisdom. God's wisdom. If you're writing these down, just write God's law and God's wisdom. You don't have to write the books down. We'll talk about them more and more. Those books would be Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Psalms, and Proverbs. 
Job includes wisdom for, life, for when life gets really hard. Ecclesiastes and Proverbs include wisdom for all of life. Uh, Psalms includes wisdom by way of songs. And Song of Solomon includes wisdom for everybody's favorite part of life. That's the five books of God's wisdom. And finally, you hear God's voice through the prophets. God's voice through the prophets. We have this division that we use in church. We talk about the major prophets and the minor prophets. It's not because one of them had important things to say and one of them had unimportant things to say. We call the major prophets major prophets because the scope of what they're talking about is a little more global and the scope of what the minor prophets are talking about is a little more localized to Israel itself. Typically, the major prophets are a little longer than the minor prophets as well. So those major prophets, the voice of God through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel show up in the Old Testament as well. And then the minor prophets, still God's voice to his people, are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And that's the Old Testament. It's the book of first promises. God tells us his law. We break it. God gives us wisdom. Sometimes we heed it, sometimes we don't. And then it includes God's voice to his people. We're gonna talk about how that book came together. We're gonna talk about who wrote it. We're gonna talk about all kinds of different things. But what I wanted to do today is give us kind of an overview of what's happening in the Old Testament in the book of first promises. And towards the end of that book of first promises, God starts to make another promise, doesn't he? And he fulfills that promise in his son. And the New Testament is a record, an account, a library of books that are put together to tell us about God's second promise. And so in the, book of, in the second promise book, the New Testament, we have God's son. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write gospels. The, evan the evangelists write gospels to compel us and convince us to put our active faith and trust in Jesus as God's son, the Christ of the living God. Once Jesus dies, uh, resurrected, and ascends into heaven, God establishes his church. And so the next section of the Old Testament is all about God's church. Acts is the history of the inception of God's church. And subsequent to Acts are a bunch of letters that apostles wrote to God's church in order to encourage them. Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 and 2 3 John, and Jude, all letters to the church in order to exhort and move them forward on the mission that God has called them to. And finally, in Revelation, we've got God's future. God's future. A bunch of those other prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, but will. But they will. And this is the New Testament. It's not complicated, men and women. It really is not. The, the Bible is just a library of God's promises. Do me a favor. Do you have a Bible on you? If you don't, grab one out of the seat back or punch your neighbor and grab theirs. Grab a Bible. Grab a Bible. I'm going to grab my phone because this is what I read my Bible on. You can use your phone if you want to, all right? Hold it up with me. This is a library, say it, of God's promises. Now listen close. Listen to what we're saying about this now. This is a library of God's promises. Isn't that cool? Say it with me one more time. This is a library of God's promises. 
you can put it back. That is our underlying basic definition of what the scripture is that we'll be working with through this entire series to help us read the Bible, figure out why we can trust the Bible. We're gonna talk about how the Bible came together over time because there wasn't like one big publisher working on the whole thing. We're gonna talk about problematic texts in the Bible, all with that definition in mind that the Bible is a library of God's promises. The other thing that we're gonna do in this series is we're gonna memorize a verse together. Are you excited? We're gonna memorize Psalm 119, longest chapter in the entire Bible. Or do you wanna do 117, shortest chapter in the entire Bible? Which one do you wanna do? How about let's do this one, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching and correct, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What we're gonna do here in a minute is we're gonna say this verse all together, we're gonna to repeat it, and every week of the series, we're gonna repeat this verse together and have it memorized by the time that we're done so that we obey what the psalmist says, who says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord and on it he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and season and his leaf doesn't wither or fade. It's very, very difficult to meditate on the B-I-B-L-E if you don't know the B-I-B-L-E. And then what we're gonna do to conclude our time together this morning is derive four big truths, four big doctrinal truths uh, that, that Christians affirm, and I'm gonna boil them down to really simple terms that we can derive actually from this verse right here. But let's start by saying it together. Are you ready? Let's see it. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's do it one more time. That was fun, wasn't it? It was exciting. It was good. Okay. <laughs> All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Because God breathed out the scripture, we know that the Bible is true. The Bible is true. This is the biblical doctrine of inerrancy. The Chicago Statement of Inerrancy says that the Bible does not affirm anything contrary to fact. And there's a lot of subtleties of what that means and what infallibility means and all kinds of stuff and original manuscripts. I could get into all that if you want me to, but I probably just better saying that the Bible's true that we can trust the Bible. In fact, we've got a friend coming next week. You guys, this is gonna blow your mind. We've got a friend of Bayview coming next week. Her name is Amy Orr Ewing, and she's gonna be sharing because she's an expert on this question of can we trust the Bible, the authenticity, veracity, and historicity of the scripture. She's the European director for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and she holds a PhD from a school called Oxford. Oxford, I believe it's called. It's no Arizona State, but it's a good school, all right? And she's gonna be here next week and talk a little bit about why we can trust the Bible and, and why the Bible is true. But before we get there, what I wanna tell you is a couple of things this morning. People say the Bible's not true, the Bible's not true. And they pick out really weird things to point out. Like, yeah, the Bible says this about the sun. You know, or the Bible says this, the Bible says that. The Bible can still be true and speak in colloquial language. Do you understand that? 
Like, let me give you an example. How many of you know that the sun rose this morning? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you know the sun rose this morning. Sun didn't rise this morning. It didn't. Uh, the earth rotated. The sun stayed put. And it looked like the sun was rising, right? And so when sometimes people say, the, the Bible said the sun rose this morning. See, the Bible's got an error in it. It's not true. Oh, my gosh. This just is ridiculous. Or the Bible can use loose or free quotations. We do that all the time and still be true. So if somebody says, I'll be to dinner shortly, and then you go back to the dinner table and said, so-and-so says he's on his way. That's the same thing. But you didn't use the exact quote. See, the Bible can do that and still be true. The Bible can include grammatical errors and language anomalies. Mark's Greek, compared to the other three evangelists, by the way, is like bad. Like fisherman bad. Like it's bad, right? Revelation includes a lot of really strange constructions grammatically. But how many of you know that just because you can speak well doesn't mean you always tell the truth? Have you heard of politics? <laughs> or, or some of the people that I know that are the most honest people in the world also have zero command of the English language. They're called Texans. They're really great. Um, See, in the same way, just because the Bible has grammatical errors doesn't mean that it's not true. And this is what we can affirm because it's God-breathed. Second thing we can affirm is that the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear. People say this all the time. The Bible is confusing. 99% of stuff, it really isn't. Like Mark Twain said, uh, again, to, to quote him again, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. The Bible is clear as to who Jesus is. The Bible is clear as to who God is. The Bible is clear as to what the mission of the church is. The Bible is clear as to how we achieve uh, or, or, or um, acquire salvation. Achieve sounds like we did something for it, but acquire salvation from God. The Bible is clear on so very many things. And we read the Bible and we go, now was Jesus entering Samaria or exiting Samaria? Very unclear, really, really. Well, that's a problematic text. We'll deal with that one in a few weeks. But the Bible is clear. The $2 word that uh, theologians use is the clarity of Scripture. This is a doctrine that the Bible teaches about itself, that all Scriptures God breathed. It is clear. The Bible is enough. The $2 theological term is the sufficiency of Scripture. But the Bible is enough. It's given, given us everything we need for salvation. It's given us everything we need to know God. It's given us everything we need to know his son. It's given us everything we need for life and godliness. It is enough. And finally, the Bible is needed. The theological term, doctrinal term, is the necessity of scripture. So you can learn about Jesus from history, but you don't learn about his atoning death on the cross outside of the Bible. You can see God in creation, but you don't learn about his character and what he's up to in the world outside of the Bible. You can learn about the church from history, but you can't learn about the exhortation of the apostles to the church outside of the Bible. We need the Bible in order to be men and women of faith. Before we quote this verse together one more time as we close, I just want to close with this. What you think about the Bible, how you read it and interpret it and apply it, you understand that matters a great deal, right? You know, the Bible was used to defend the Crusades. Or in the part of the country I'm from, the US, part of the US I'm from, the Bible was used to defend segregation. So that people who are my daughter's color and people that are my color can't use the same water fountain, can't swim in the same pool. 
And the Bible has been used for violence against the homosexual community. The Bible has empowered individuals to give all that they have for the sake of the poor. The Bible has empowered individuals like Martin Luther King to work against that very network of segregation that was in place in the United States. How we see this thing, how we read this thing, how we understand this thing, and that we understand it, that we love it, it matters. I've heard it said before, you could read a lot of books, but the Bible is the only book that'll read you. So that's what we're gonna do over the next six weeks. We're gonna learn about in order to love the Bible more and more. And I'm so excited for this series. Say this verse with me one more time and we'll be done. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Oh God, would you equip us for the good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. God, we stand on your promises, even as the song says, stand alone on the word of God. We stand together on the word of God. We stand on your promises and we say that you will thoroughly equip us for every good work, that you've given us everything we need for life and faith and godliness, that the Bible is enough. And God, teach us, oh God, to give it a chance for some in the room, we've just used excuse after excuse. It's boring, it's too long, it's complicated, it's, it's self-contradictory. And God, just convict hearts, even in this place, so that we come broken before you, we open our hearts to the scripture, and we're changed and transformed from the inside out. We affirm together today that the Bible is true, the Bible is clear, the Bible is enough, and the Bible is needed. And we are so grateful that we get to hold in our hands library of your promises. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Let's stand as we close in song.